Slip, trip, hey, who bought the dip? Stock sold off, then started to rip. Fear drew near, then greed reappeared. We've seen this before, in fact, quite a lot. Uncertainty causing chaos, like a shot at the top. Is it a debt crisis out of China that's giving us angina? Or fears of inflation eating up the nation? We keep looking for signs to sell, but afraid to miss the next swell. Is this as good as it gets, or have we not seen nothing yet? The Fed says GDP ain't what it used to be. Well, what does that mean for you and for me? So many questions, so hard to assess. Let's catch up quick on the Investopedia Express. Welcome aboard, one and all, and a special welcome to Ameriprise Financial, our new sponsor on the Investopedia Express. We are glad you're here. Meeting your financial goals starts with planning. Ameriprise Financial provides personalized, goal-based advice that can help you navigate today while staying on track of your long-term financial goals. Visit Ameriprise.com slash check to see how confident you are about the advice you're receiving. Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Well, last week was a wake-up call. Summer's over and a chill blew into capital markets from Hong Kong to Wall Street and beyond. U.S. equity markets had their most volatile week in months, bringing us the first 2% daily drop since March as fears of a potential debt crisis out of China and more mixed messages on the economic recovery combined to deliver a healthy dose of anxiety into the mix. Well, in case you missed it, China's Evergrande Group, one of the country's biggest real estate lenders and developers, warned it might default on $308 billion in loans. Its lenders represent some of the biggest banks in China and the U.S., While it may not be a Lehman Brothers moment like the one we witnessed back in 2008 when one of Wall Street's oldest banks was forced to file for bankruptcy under mountains of debt and subpar mortgage-backed loans, investors were having flashbacks. Reader interest in our history of the Lehman Brothers collapse soared last week as investors were looking for comparisons. While there aren't many, the fear of global contagion across capital markets is the big one. How many Evergrande's are there out there, and how precarious is the multi-trillion dollar mountain of global debt swimming around capital markets? As for Evergrande, the developer missed an $83 million denominated interest payment on its debt last Thursday, bringing fears of default into sharper focus. If Evergrande should default, here's who will be impacted, its creditors and suppliers, and it has many given that it is China's largest property developer. Next, multinational companies that do a lot of business with and in China. Think big banks, industrial companies, commodity producers, and manufacturers. That's another long list. And investors who are long China, and the country has not made it easy for them lately. President Xi and his administration have been tightening their grip on Chinese industries one after the other. Last week, it was cryptocurrencies again. The country's most powerful regulators banded together for the first time to outlaw all cryptocurrency activity, not just mining and payments. Keep in mind, China plans to roll out its own national digital currency next year, and it may not want any competitive pressure when it does that. Back in July, it was the education sector. Chinese officials banned companies that teach school subjects for making profits, going public, or raising money. And earlier this month, it was the online gaming industry in its crosshairs. The government imposed new rules that vastly curbed the amount of time children can play video games online. And just recently, it was casinos. The Xi administration started an unexpected review of industry supervision in Macau, the world's biggest gambling hub. These crackdowns are cracking down on equity returns across China. The MSCI China Index is down 18% year-to-date, while the MSCI USA Index is up 18%. Europe's around 11% up in the same period. 
and more pain in the supply chain. The perfect storm of increased demand, port shutdowns due to COVID, backlogs of cargo ships lasting for weeks, not enough truckers, and too little storage is all adding up to delays and rising costs. Don't worry, those will get passed right on down to consumers, but here are some big numbers to put things in perspective. Overall container volumes at the Port of Los Angeles have grown 30% so far this year compared to 2020, but cargo transport out of the port has only grown 8%. And there's not enough warehouse space to store all the goods coming in and out of U.S. ports. According to Cushman Wakefield, vacancy rates among Southern California's warehouse zones, some of the largest in the world, are only 2%. Nike said last week that the amount of time it takes to move a cargo container from Asian factories to North America is now about 80 days, or twice as long as it was before the pandemic. Walmart and Costco, they're taking matters into their own hands. They're chartering their own cargo ships to make sure they have enough inventory for the fourth quarter and the all-important holiday shopping season. And then there's chips. Chocolate chip cookie mean whole lot to me. No, not those chips, Cookie Monster. Take it easy. Microchips, semiconductors if you prefer, that industry which underpins so many other industries can't keep up with demand. Last week, global automakers said they expect the semiconductor shortage to cost the industry $225 billion in sales this year. It takes about 400 chips to build the modern automobile, and the White House is concerned. It convened its second meeting of technology companies, including Intel, AMD, Ford, and Microsoft last week, to work on solutions for more productions. It's pledging more than $50 billion in assistance from taxpayers to fix what it is calling a national security issue. But money won't solve everything. It takes years to build a semiconductor factory and a lot of water. Are you ready for some really big numbers? $141.7 trillion. According to the latest data from the Federal Reserve, Americans' total net worth surged to a record $141.7 trillion through the second quarter of this year. That's a gain of nearly $6 trillion from the first quarter and an increase of 4%. Household net worth has also rocketed nearly 20% since the early days of the pandemic. Most of the credit goes to the rising stock and real estate markets. Stock gains accounted for more than half of the overall gain in the most recent quarter. The robust housing market also helped. Real estate appreciation added a record $1.2 trillion in new wealth during the quarter. The bad news? Americans also fell deeper into debt. According to the Fed, consumer debt totaled over $17 trillion last quarter, up nearly 8%. Breaking that down, consumer credit was up 8.6%, while mortgage debt was up 8%. Along with rising household debt, U.S. government debt increased. It ended the second quarter owing over $28 trillion, a jump of nearly 10%, and the most since the spring of 2020. That's when the government began launching its aggressive stimulus programs to pull the economy out of the pandemic recession. Let's get set up for the week ahead. The Office of Management and Budget in the U.S. alerted federal agencies last week that unless a new appropriations bill is passed by this Thursday, they will begin to execute government shutdown plans. Even if a shutdown doesn't come, a prolonged standoff could still have consequences for U.S. equity markets if recent precedents are any indication. While U.S. government shutdowns or debt ceiling battles in the past have had no consistent impact on the S&P 500 itself, there are plenty of sensitive stocks and sectors that are impacted by government spending. Companies that derive 95% or more of their income from government contracts include 
Huntington Ingalls Industries, Mercury Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Science Applications International, Booz Hamilton, and CACI International. Put those stocks on your watch list this week. And Facebook will hold its annual Gaming Developer Day this week. The social media giant is in the crosshairs of regulators for antitrust issues, and now watchdogs given the Wall Street Journal's recent expose on the company's own research that showed that it knew how its platform was contributing to mental health issues among teens. Shares of Facebook are down 3% in the past month. On the earnings front, while the third quarter is coming to a close this week, Micron will report last quarter's results. The chipmaker is one of the poster children of the semiconductor supply shortage, and investors appear skeptical about its future prospects. Shares are down 10% in the past three months and down 1.5% for the year. On the IPO horizon, eyeglass maker and retailer Warby Parker will start trading via direct listing on September 30th. Keep an eye out for that one. On the economic front, on Tuesday, the conference board will release its Consumer Confidence Index for September, which follows a report earlier this month that showed consumer sentiment remains near decade lows. Consumer concerns have largely been driven by rising inflation, which has slowed a little bit but remains elevated above pre-pandemic levels. Consumer confidence readings in Europe will follow on Wednesday as well. We'll also find out if housing prices across America's 20 largest cities continued to rise in July with the S&P Case-Shiller Price Index on Tuesday. Last week, we learned that single-family home starts contracted 2.8% in August, and an ongoing tightening of supply will likely have kept prices high after the index's last release showed prices rose 18.6% year-over-year as of June. On Wednesday, we'll get a report on pending home sales for August from the National Association of Retailers, which are expected to have slowed following a 2% decline in July. Housing is finally starting to cool down. On Friday, we'll get an update on U.S. personal income and consumer spending from the Bureau of Economic Analysis for the month of August. Spending slowed considerably in June and in July, particularly for non-essentials. And Friday's report will show whether that trend continued. Speaking of the economy, those mixed messages coming from all over the world have added a few clouds of uncertainty over major economies 18 months since the pandemic brought the world to a standstill. The rise of the Delta variant has complicated that recovery throughout Asia, Europe, India, and the U.S. Central banks are caught between wanting to remove the safety nets of their bond-buying programs and raise interest rates and a reticence to remove all that support too soon. At our recent Your Money, Your Health Summit with our partners at VeryWell.com last week, I sat down with Ethan Harris. He's the head of global economic research at Bank of America Merrill Lynch Research to take the temperature of the global economy and peer into the future of the recovery. Here are a few minutes from that conversation. Let's talk about the long-term scarring effects. I know a lot of economists like to think about these things in terms of long-tail effects that we're going to see for years to come. What do you think, as in your team, when you look at what's happened and where we are right now in the recovery, how do you see the long-term scarring playing out over the next five, 10 years? Well, any big event like this is going to leave some lasting effects. And I think the big one is that the whole world now realizes that you have to be better prepared for pandemics. So Resources that would have gone into growing the economy will go into pandemic prevention. We'll have more money going to healthcare, more focus on the risks of spreading disease, which is a good thing because you know we came into this pandemic very unprepared. There are also some some negative aspects to this. The pandemic could create you know a lack of confidence going forward, which tends to to hold back activity. 
And the pandemic's also added a little extra tension to this trade war story and this kind of U.S.-China battle as people try to blame each other for their problems. And that is going to kind of weigh on the global trading system for a while to come. Exactly. And I wanted to talk about some of the trends that were already in motion that may have been accelerated due to the pandemic. I'm talking about things like deglobalization, but there are other factors out there that were already happening, but seem to have been, again, accelerated or ignited because of what went down. Talk to me about some of those of the ones that you've been tracking. Yeah, I mean, the deglobalization is probably the most important thing. I mean, we had the trade war coming into this uh, crisis. We had a bit of a respite during the election year, but trade war has always been sitting there in the background. The U.S.-China relations have not improved at all. And it's not like you can kind of seamlessly decouple. It doesn't work that way. The world economy is very integrated. And we're seeing that right now with the disruptions to supply chains. If you get a problem in Malaysia, for example, can affect the auto industry globally. And so it's very hard to unwind all these chains without uh, creating some disruption. So we need to watch that. I'm hopeful that this will happen gradually in an organized fashion, but I am a bit worried. There are some other things going on that are more positive. One of them is the adoption of new technology. I mean, sometimes stress and and crisis is the mother of invention. And so right now, I mean, two things could come out of this. One is faster adoption of labor-saving technology and improvements in productivity that come with them. And the other is reorganization of workplaces. I think coming into this crisis, most business leaders were scared to death about their workers being at home and not under the watchful eye. And I think what we found out is that for most workers in in white collar industries where you can work from home, it actually works quite well. Let's talk a little bit about the K-shaped recovery, right? This has been a very uneven recovery, not too dissimilar to 2008, 2009, but maybe more extreme because it happened so quickly. If you had a job, if you had equity, if you owned stocks and owned your home and had some income and were able to keep your job, you probably did pretty well through the pandemic as long as your health was intact. If you didn't have those things, the ladder just got a lot steeper, didn't it? This has been a remarkably uneven recovery, and COVID has hurt low-income people a lot more than upper-income people. So folks like me who can work from home have done fine through the pandemic. Uh, People who are in high-touch jobs where you have to go and be interacting with a lot of people, which are generally lower-paying jobs, got really hurt. Now, I am optimistic about recovery going forward. Uh, Right now, we're in a bit of a dead spot because of the escalation of COVID cases. In particular, I worry about high hospitalization rates, which are really not good for confidence and really an inhibitor for people going back to work. If you're worried about getting COVID, it's very scary to go back to a workplace where not everyone is vaccinated. But I do think that as we get past this Delta wave, and assuming we don't get another worse variant of COVID, you're going to see a pretty robust recovery. There's a lot of monetary and fiscal stimulus in the economy, and it will be released in a more powerful way once you can get the reopening going again. Let's talk about the, the support from federal, uh, from central banks and from governments, because it's been unprecedented. Tons of government spending. I think we have a chart on the amount of government spending that's been out there and the amount of, and the, and the low level of interest rates. Are central banks just going to be here to save the day no matter what happens from now on by keeping rates pinned to the ground and by doing quantitative easing? Is that just what they have to do from now on? 
Well, I think that that when you're in a crisis like this, you got to go all in. You ha- you need effective monitoring fiscal policy. It's not really a good idea to have interest rates this low and have this much fiscal stimulus when you have a healthy economy. You're going to overheat things. And so I do think that this lower inflation, low interest rate environment is likely to stick for a while. But we will see a little bit of edging out of this unusually weak interest rate and inflation environment. And I do think the Fed will succeed in what they've said they want to do. They want to not create runaway inflation, but create a little bit of lubricants, quote unquote, into the economy with a bit of inflation. And that allows them then to start raising interest rates. And the reason that's important is we know at some point there's going to be another crisis And in a sense, they need to rearm themselves to reload the policy gun. And so I view it as a good sign when the Fed is able to, due to the recovery in the economy, stop their bond purchases, start raising interest rates, and set themselves up for the next crisis. For folks out there that don't study the macroeconomic environment as closely as you do, what is the danger or the long-term detriments of all this excessive spending of these low interest rates. Obviously, inflation is part of it. We're seeing it front and center now, but some of that is supply chain issues because we can't get ships unloaded and we can't get truckers to truck it across country, the goods across country. We don't have enough semiconductors, et cetera. But folks are worried in general about what it means to debt and deficits going forward. And that just seems to be a problem we keep kicking down the road. What is the actual problem that many of us will experience if we experience it all to all of the spending? The problem with super easy policy is, while it's certainly appropriate during a recession, and I applaud a lot of what we've seen in Washington from the last year and a half, as you get into a more normal recovery, you're going to reach a situation where you're having two negative impacts. One is you're basically hoarding resources away from the rest of the economy. The economy at some point will reach limits and how much it can produce and how much it can grow. And at that point, if you continue to run massive deficits in the federal government, you're now robbing Peter to pay Paul in the economy. That is not a healthy thing. We want a more balanced economy. So it's important that Washington develop some budget discipline in in the next few years. And the other thing, of course, what we just talked about, I mean, right now the inflation pressure feels temporary. What's the hottest market out there? It's used cars. And it's used cars because people want don't want to use public transportation and they want to buy a car and new cars are having supply chain problems. So we've got that massive inflation pressure. The bigger issue down the road is about overdoing the stimulus to the economy. Too much easy Fed, too much easy fiscal. And sometime in the next year or two, you get a more sustained rise in inflation. So that that's the risk of, of overdoing it. It's not that we're going to have a debt crisis and people are going to abandon the dollar and all that. That's not an issue. It's really about overdoing it and distorting the economy and creating inflation risks. I want to do put our stethoscopes on get our uh, airline tickets and travel country to country. We don't have to go that in depth, but I want to talk about where the strength is and where the weakness is right now. So this is looking across the world. Obviously, Latin America, you see that red patch up there. That's mostly Venezuela, some Colombia. But around the world, growth rates are pretty good. But do you feel like there's a softening? And let's start in Asia. In Asia, you have, as in many parts of the world, 
you've got a pretty good recovery going on with this caveat that the escalation of COVID has put some real sand in the gear. So China has been a very strong recovery story, but it's cooled down a bit in part because they've been shutting down cities that have COVID crises and partly because, frankly, they've been putting a crunch on their real estate sector. Your people in the line have probably seen the news about this developer called Evergrande. And that tightening of credit is creating a bit of turmoil in China. But generally speaking, we're pretty optimistic about growth going forward there. We are very bullish if you move across the world to North America. We're very bullish on the U.S. and Canada that have had very strong policy responses to the crisis, particularly the U.S. The U.S. actually stands out relative to every major economy in terms of the potency of the stimulus. And then if you swing over to Europe, you're looking at a less impressive recovery. And a lot of that is because they have not done the same kind of all-in kind of fiscal expansion that the U.S. And then finally, I would say, if you look at the real problem, the thing that really disturbs me is, is more in the countries that we don't spend a lot of time on. It's these very poor countries that don't have access to vaccines, and they don't have the fiscal capacity to provide the kind of bailout and support that you see in the big economies. And so if you go to big chunks of Africa, parts of Asia, in South America, you know, you're just not getting the kind of recovery you'd like to see. And so in, in it's been, a, as I said, in, in the U.S., it's been an uneven shock in the sense of low-wage workers hurt the most. Globally, it's been an uneven shock in that the low-income countries have been hurt the worst. Given what we've seen and given the new focus or a renewed focus on climate change and issues around that, but also the collapse of the energy complex when this pandemic began, what does that signal to you in, for the years to come in terms of the petro economy, in terms of countries that depend on oil and energy for their revenue and for their income? How do you see that playing out in the next couple of years? Well, I think it's going to be a gradual shrinking in demand for carbon. So, you know, for a long time, of course, you had the opposite argument, which was that, you know, we're going to run out of oil and, and natural gas. Um, and then we repeatedly found more, discovered new ways to extract it. And that kind of shortage question never really materialized. I think what you see going forward is a reversal of that kind of period where there's this kind of chronic concern about shortage developing to more of a chronic concern about a glut and a decline in the, in the size of the sector. And so I think for a lot of companies and businesses in, in the energy business, it's about diversifying and kind of making sure you're on board with where, where are we going in the future, which is going to be renewable energy and, and conservation. That was Ethan Harris, the head of global economics research at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, who joined us at our summit last week. Folks, there were so many great panels and conversations from our conference last week, and we are posting them all on investopedia.com slash your money, your health. Check them out. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us courtesy of Shea in lovely Charlotte, North Carolina. Shea suggests dollar cost averaging this week, and it's one of my favorite investing terms and one of our most popular on Investopedia. 
Well, according to Investopedia, dollar cost averaging refers to the practice of systematically investing equal amounts spaced out over regular intervals, regardless of price. The goal of dollar cost averaging is to reduce the overall impact of volatility on the price of the target asset, as the price will likely vary each time one of the periodic investments is made. The investment is not as highly subject to volatility. Dollar cost averaging aims to avoid making the mistake of making one lump sum investment that is poorly timed with regard to asset pricing. I love this term because you can't time the market or the movement of a particular stock, but you can systematically keep buying the stock or security you believe in through dollar cost averaging and build up a nice size position of it over time. If you do that regularly and you choose wisely, you'll be surprised at how those returns look in a few years and you won't be so worried about having perfect timing. Smart suggestion, Shay. Get ready for some handsome Investopedia socks heading your way in the mail real soon. And thanks again to Ameriprise for sponsoring the Express. It's so good to have you on board. Ameriprise Financial Advisors provide personalized, goal-based financial advice that can help you get on track now and stay on track for tomorrow. Visit Ameriprise.com slash check to see if you are getting the financial advice you need. Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. We're going to let Sir John Templeton take us out this week. The legendary value investor from Winchester, Tennessee, was famous for his patience and for his ability to swim against the tide. Here's Templeton from a documentary produced by Franklin Resources, which bought his firm, talking about the value of resilience when investing like a contrarian. When you're trying to buy low and sell high, you must be sure that you don't listen too much to your competitors. A stock never goes down to a very low price except one reason, and that is that almost everybody's trying to sell it. So you have to be prepared with the independence of viewpoint to be able to go against the crowd, to do the opposite of what almost all people are doing, including the experts. Otherwise, you don't get in at a bargain price. Sometimes it pays to go against the flow, especially when the flow feels a little out of control. Let's find our own pace this week. Stay focused, stay kind, and stay healthy. We'll talk again a little further on down the line.